Welcome to Contagious Thinking, coming to you from the MRC, University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. It's hard to get anywhere in microbiology without a microscope, and the cutting edge right now is cryo-electron microscopy, where samples are frozen in clear ice so that they stay in their natural state when they're viewed. In this week's episode, Connor is joined by Dr Liz Wright from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who explains how technological advances have empowered researchers to unpick the structures of viruses like RSV, influenza and HIV. So we'll begin, I'm, uh, I'm Connor Bamford, I'm a postdoc in the lab of John McLaughlin here at the CVR. So I'm Elizabeth Wright, I'm a professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. So um, maybe you can give us a flavour about how you came to be there, so how, where, where were you born, for example? So I was originally born in Pinehurst, North Carolina in the okay. U.S., and my dad was a career army officer, so yeah. we moved all over the U.S. and the world. Uh, and then when I was in high school, we landed in Georgia, and so I did my undergraduate work in biology and chemistry, and then did my graduate work in chemistry at Emory. And at that point, I was looking at postdoc positions and moved out to Southern California and spent a small amount of time at the University of Southern California doing material science and then moved to Grant Jensen's lab at Caltech for my postdoc uh, in cryo-EM-based structural biology. After a number of years with Grant, I looked for faculty positions and uh, uh, was recruited to Emory University uh, in the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease uh, to build a cryo-EM facility and also develop uh, structural biology questions related to host pathogen interactions in a number of enveloped viruses, mm-hmm. viruses and bacteria. So I was at Emory for about 10 years and was looking to once again develop a state-of-the-art cryo-EM facility and the University of Madison, the University of Wisconsin-Madison mm-hmm. was also looking to recruit someone, and so it was just a perfect timing okay. of... Um, okay, so I see, I guess, three things. One is that you work on pathogens. The other one is you work on cryo-EM. But when did you first get interested about science? Oh, so when I was probably about five years old and we were living in uh, Colorado at the time, you know, my parents asked me, well, what do you want to be with you grow up? And so I had three <coughs> things in mind. It was either be a barrel racer, because I loved horses, a veterinarian, mm-hmm. or an artist. Okay. Uh, so uh, I think in some ways all three of those things have stuck, and my passion for science led into doing research-based science versus medicine. Sweet. You work on viruses, not on pathogens, but you began more on the chemistry side? Yeah, so my PhDs in chemistry, uh, and in that group we studied um, protein-based engineering to develop novel uh, materials that could be used for tissue engineering as well as drug delivery. And so that's where I gathered my foundation in uh, structural or biophysical methods where we used cryo-EM, NMR, uh, mass spec, and other means to characterize Mm -hmm. the materials we're we're generating. So at this time, was cryo a thing? Was it, you know, was it being used or? Yeah. So uh, this was in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and uh, there were a number of cryo EM groups around the country uh, and and the world, uh, but it was still small scale because mm-hmm. the 
the major advances in the technology hadn't been realized at that point. So you really had to be a diehard technology person to want to go into the... Okay, so then when did you start training cryolium field? So during my graduate work, uh, we did cryo scanning electron microscopy versus uh, transmission electron microscopy because the materials we were interested in characterizing were in the bulk phase. Mm-hmm. So while they were aqueous, we weren't looking at isolated protein complexes or viruses or bacteria. We were looking at a really large assembly. And then that translated to uh, going into cryo TEM when mm-hmm. I was a postdoc. And is this when viruses and pathogens appeared on your radar? or? It is. So uh, when I was in Grant's lab, we had, I guess, two emphasis areas looking at uh, bacteria and the cytoskeleton within bacteria and then HIV biology. And so my interest is really in the HIV biology. So how did you make that choice or what made your interest in viruses? So uh, I guess when I was uh, growing up, of course, uh, the problem with HIV began in the in the 80s and so I had always had an interest in, in understanding how the virus worked you know could we develop vaccines or therapeutics or other targets to reduce the burden of infection on the world population and so th- this had always been in the back of my mind you know I'd done advocacy and other things but to be able to have the opportunity to to work to understand the fundamentals yeah. of the virus was really exciting to me in, in Grant's lab. And then when did you make the move to RSV? And um... So that happened at, at Emory, and we still work on HIV today. So we work on a number of different enveloped uh, viruses, HIV, RSV, and, and measles virus, a little bit of flu as well. Um, this was because uh, there was a large RSV biology group at Emory, and it was a logical interaction space of thinking about this and the realization that there's no vaccine against RSV. Mm-hmm. It impacts the pediatric and the, the geriatric populations in a significant way. And so can we understand more about the virus so that we can develop uh, develop a vaccine mm-hmm. or other therapeutic mm-hmm. Um, so what, maybe if we get into the science then, so what are the, I guess, the challenges and what are the big questions regarding the structure of viruses like ours? So there's a, a couple of them. Uh, we still, it's still unclear to us of how RSV assembles in the cell. We have light level microscopy and molecular biology that has given us hints about where the components are congregating in the cell, but that mm-hmm. level of resolution is insufficient to, for us to begin to real to determine, you know, who's co-recruited mm-hmm. at a particular site. Say if it's an inclusion body or and to an inclusion body into a site of assembly on the cell surface, uh, and um, so it's the order of recruitment and how this proceeds. And then, uh, if we're looking at an infectious virus particle we still don't understand where the G or the attachment glycoprotein Mm -hmm. is present on the virus surface and if it has any interaction with F, the -hmm. fusion glycoprotein on the virus. And to that end, we don't even know the structure of G as it's present on the virus. So um, by teasing this information, we can begin to understand how the virus promotes its infection in the host cell. I guess why would that be important? So right now, um, 
that would be important because we can develop better vaccines mm -hmm. that maybe contain modulated glycoproteins on the surface to elicit a particular response. Yes, this is because the glycoproteins are the major target of, of a vaccine. Right, yeah. and the interaction with the host cell, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and and the, what receptors they're actually targeting on the host cell. Okay, so these are really fundamental questions, but they're really... Mm -hmm. Okay, but I guess the one challenge, or the one difference about RSV is that it's filamentous. Is it the only filament? No, there are a number of other filamentous viruses. So RSV, uh, of course, human metanumovirus, mm -hmm. which is in the same virus family, the pneumovirus family, which <coughs> is an offshoot that recently developed in the last couple of years. Uh, Ebola and, and Marburg are mm -hmm. also filamentous particles. Um, flu mm -hmm. is uh, as well. Uh, so this really, is, the underpinning of whether a virus is filamentous or not is based on proteins that line the membrane mm -hmm. and, and how they organize the rest of the virus structure. So mm -hmm. in the case of RSV, uh, human metanumovirus, this would be the matrix protein. Mm -hmm. And so... At this point, we don't have a clear understanding of how the matrix protein coordinates the assembly and, and formation of the virus particle. Okay. And so that would be another question that we're addressing with cryo-EM. Yeah, so it's the, the, the general structure, but also this filamentous feature as well. Because you also work on measles, but it's not filamentous and it has a... Well, Correct. So Yes, so measles virus is more of a rounded virus, mm -hmm. and we believe this is due to how the uh, <coughs> its matrix protein coordinates to form a more checkerboard lattice. Uh, to under the under the envelope. under the viral mm -hmm. membrane, whereas we don't have a clear understanding of what the matrix protein structure is that filamentous viruses. Right, for say RSV or metanumovirus. Okay. I guess it's a really big and general question, but why are viruses filamentous? Or why are some not filamentous? So uh, this is a great question. Um, most of it's attributed to what uh, host cell and receptors they're targeting. So, for example, with RSV, uh, you know, there is the transmission from one cell to another, and they can mm -hmm. form these long filamentous structures where they just connect with the next cell over. Mm -hmm. um, and so this may be a fitness mechanism for them allow, to allow them to do this, whereas other viruses just butt off and are released as, say, mostly spherical particles, like HIV or measles, and it's most likely due to the environment they're present in and mm -hmm. how they're going to propagate with um, But I guess... Is that known, or is that is this really a way to test that? Can you make RSV spherical and see what happens, or make measles? Film? Uh, so it's easier with RSV, where uh, one of the things you can do is modulate the matrix protein mm -hmm. so that it doesn't form higher order oligomers, uh, and so it's more rounded particling off the surface. I don't think that's happened with nobody's done anything to then mm -hmm. alter it to be forming a filamentous particle. Okay, but there are studies of people making RSV spherical. Yeah. Okay, yep. does it show it does the virus what, the grow? infectivity? Yeah. Uh, it does modulate the infectivity, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So what, I guess, what are the strengths of then comparing the two viruses? Or so what have you gained from working on, say, HIV or RSV? Uh, so one of the things that was really valuable with the work we did on HIV, so we were looking at the immature virus, and this was in 2007, so the field has advanced quite significantly <coughs> since then, but we first illustrated the uh, 
how the capsid protein forms a regular hexameric structure that uh, is maintained in place by the spacer peptide 1 mm -hmm. that is underneath it. Uh, and so this is also where one of the cleavage points is with the protease. And so when the protease comes in, it cleaves it at SP1 sites, and then the capsid disassembles and then reassembles to form the mature capsid mm -hmm. lattice. And so a number of investigators had been developing and targeting uh, maturation inhibitors towards the SP1 region. And so by illustrating that SP1 was anchoring mm -hmm. this lattice into this particular orientation space, that helped us understand and make mm -hmm. sense of that drug's function. For RSV, uh, you know, we're, one path is looking at the fundamental biology of the virus and structure and function, but we've also been working with other groups as they develop it as a develop vaccine candidates sure. towards uh, RSV, and we can genetically engineer the virus mm -hmm. to do certain things and, and present particular uh, structures. And what cryoEM allows us to do is validate that the genetic engineering that's been perpetuated mm -hmm. alters the structure of the virus in the mm -hmm. way that we would like it to be. Yeah, and then, so that was taking already, say, vaccine leave. But can you go the other way and say, from a structural perspective, this is how we design a vaccine? These certain properties? You want the virus to look like this? What you could. I don't know that anyone has done that yet, but mm -hmm. that's certainly a possibility. Yeah. So I guess the other thing is that all this is just is driven by technological interest in developing that technology. Us an idea, important or what were the main technologies that you've? So uh, I'll give you a concept of you know what's been developed in cryoEM over the last number of years, and then where we have targeted our workflows within within the greater context. So the field has blossomed due to two major emphasis areas the ability to automate the microscopes and make them much more robust in, in how they operate so that we can collect vast amounts of data in short amounts of time and the second component is the uh, what we term the direct electron detect so these have reduced uh, the detrimental signal-to-noise ratio that we had with uh, CCD cameras, so they have a much improved signal-to-noise ratio, and that we're actually collecting the individual electrons. Mm -hmm. and, and In kind, we can collect data in what we term movie mode, so that one of the challenges we have in cryo-EM is when the electron hit the sample, we see beam-induced motion. And with a normal CCD capture, we couldn't do anything to correct. And so by collecting the data in movie mode, we can computationally correct from induced motion, which allows us to generate much higher resolution mm -hmm. structure. So when did these advances appear? So the, the heavier automation of the microscope started in the early 2000s, so 2002, mm -hmm. 2003. Uh, and then the direct electron detectors hit the market in 2013, 2014. Oh, wow. So, it's is, been. Is oh, this really what's behind the, re the very recent in cryo -EM? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The major thing would be the direct electron. And so, uh, within this cluster, what our group has been working on to develop and improve is our capacity to correlate with other structural biology mm -hmm. techniques. So, 
through the improvement of, say, labeling strategies, so we can go from light-level microscopy to EM, mm -hmm. has been a major emphasis area. And so we've worked with a, a number of groups to improve labeling strategies and, and optimize this. Uh, we've also been developing ways to you know, prepare our samples mm -hmm. uh, in an improved capacity so that we can bridge the light to EM-level techniques, as well as... Um, you know, improve the protocols and workflows we use to capture that data and analyze that data. Okay, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's good. Um, and then I guess on that note, we can move on to the final bit. Maybe we can um, so ask you the, the questions or why would, or what would you be if you weren't a scientist? But I think you might have already answered that. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so um, I guess, this is probably why I like imaging so much is uh, I've always been interested in art and painted and drawn, you know, since I was a child. And in undergraduate school, uh, I took a lot of art courses. And so at that point in time when I was deciding uh, what would be my career trajectory, I felt like I wanted to keep art as my own okay. hobby and personal yeah. area of interest and, and make science my um my work life uh but today uh i guess if i decided to completely get out of science i would be... okay and i guess this answers our second question what do you like to do when you're not in the lab so uh, i like to spend time with my family my husband and, and daughter we do a lot of hiking and kayaking and, uh just being out in nature and then of course i love photography and, and paint. Um, i look forward to going out to the the outer boundaries of Glasgow and, and taking yeah. some photos um, the next day. Um, so then do you have any advice for, say, PhD students or early career science? So I think uh, the biggest thing is just to be curious mm -hmm. and to don't feel like you have any boundaries, mm -hmm. you know, to try things. And there's so many mm -hmm. great techniques and, you know, you know, amazing instrumentation available today to just, you know, work with your advisor to say, let's just try this experiment yeah. and see what happens and don't be afraid. You know, being a PhD student can be challenging, but it's being persistent. Okay, I think that's a good place to end. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Connor and Liz for participating in this episode. As always, you can find our previous content over at cvrblog.myportfolio.com, email us at cvrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com, or tweet us at contagiousthinking. Next week, we'll be joined by Professor Greg Towers to find out how HIV hides its genome from cellular immune defenses. See you then. <laughs>